Well, this morning we're going to consider one of those parts of the Bible that uh, is a bit scary for preachers. It's uh, a very unique biblical story which is very obnoxious to secular people, to people who don't think there's any higher authority than humanity itself. And we're talking this morning about Sodom and Gomorrah. Where do our minds immediately go? Homosexuality. Although their sinfulness was bigger than just that. So as we do that, let's uh, pause and ask for help. Gracious Lord, your word, uh, we come to one of the most confronting parts of your word today. And I pray, Lord, that you would uh, teach us what you want us personally to know. Let this not be a sermon for the guy next to us. Let it be a message that you have for us individually. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Because, you know, secular people, they ridicule a God who would make up uncaring gender rules, who would discriminate against normal, loving people who just happen to find themselves attracted lovingly to their own gender. I mean, if there was a God, why would he have a problem with people just freely loving one another? Isn't he supposed to be a God of love? And there's no doubt there is an inexorable push in society for gay rights, for gender fluidity and the removal of barriers to humans being allowed to pleasure themselves in any way they wish. And when you don't believe in God, that is perfectly reasonable. And so when you talk with people who have that sort of mindset, what do you say? What do you, response do you have? Because their logic, their reasoning seems to have some sense to it. Well, it all makes sense if, if you start with the idea that there is no objective God. And I think increasingly our answer should be that we have a different starting point to our logic. We start with the view that there is a God who has revealed to us through the Bible the real state of affairs. And we need to own that. We need to own that our starting point is the Word of God. And we are consciously trying to live by the worldview, by the portrayal of how life really works, which we see there in God's Word. And we need to accept God's view of the sinfulness of Sodom and learn from his dramatic and decisive actions against Sodom and Gomorrah. And we have to learn because this is an example. Scripture is very clear. This is an example, a teaching point. It's a look closely, guys, and learn from this. And Jude, that little book just before Revelation, the second last book in the Bible, verse 5 and on, tells us that. It says, though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, good stuff, but later destroyed those who did not believe. How many who came out of Egypt made it through the 40 years in the wilderness? And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these years kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And then the key verse here, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality, to perversion, and they serve as an example. They serve 
example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And the eternal fire is, God is a consuming fire. He dwells in unapproachable light. That consuming fire cannot be in contact with sin. But before you dismiss this story of Sodom and Gomorrah as an example for someone else, because I would say none of us are down that line, none of us are as sinful as these guys, consider a thought. When is a tree, a massive tree, when is a tree a tree? Is it only a tree when it's fully grown? Is it? No. Is it a tree when it's a seed? Is it a tree when it's a seedling? Is it a tree when it's a sapling? It's a tree at any point, isn't it? All, at all stages of growth, it's still a tree. And that's similarly our sin nature has within it seeds. Seeds of all the possible sins in the world. Anyone is capable of any of the worst sins in the world if you let your seeds grow into seedlings and then saplings and fully grown trees. And so when we consider the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and particularly Abraham's nephew Lot who said, oh, I'm okay, I, I like this place, I'm going to live in Sodom. So when you consider that, consider whatever of the seeds you might have in your life which might be growing into saplings or seedlings or trees. Consider what it is this morning that you may have been battling unsuccessfully to overcome for many years. What they used to call this in the old days was a besetting sin. And Lord willing, this morning we'll see how to overcome that type of sin. How to get rid of what might have been dragging you down for years. How to get you out of Sodom. For we want to live in the peace and the joy that Abraham had, you know, his uncle Abraham. He's got joy, he's got peace, he's got freedom. And we want to be free of the chains which are binding Lot, who had chosen to remain in sinful Sodom. This story is a confronting reality. There was a devastating destruction of those five towns associated with Sodom and Gomorrah and including Sodom and Gomorrah. It's confronting because it happened. If it hadn't really happened, if it was just a moralistic story, then we'd enjoy the lesson like we enjoy any other ancient myth and legend. But it actually happened. And if it actually happened, then the gravity of what God did here becomes very riveting. Just like, you know, you can tell a kid, oh, don't touch that, it's hot, it burns. And then one day when he actually touches it and gets burned, then the information suddenly becomes newly alive and, and real. And so we consider the reality of the story. The fact is that the locations of those towns still exist. And Josephus, a historian writing around about the time of Jesus, he actually wrote that he could see the remains of these cities. He could see the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you thought, well, whereabouts are they? Well, here's a little map. And you can see down the, the red bit down the bottom, there's Gomorrah and Sodom. And there's the bigger picture of where it is in Israel right down the bottom there of the uh, River Jordan. We've got another 
picture here. So looking from the, the bottom end, this, this stuff down on the end is uh, what they do these days to uh, harvest minerals out of it. They set up irrigation thing, irrigation and evaporation pools and they harvest uh, uh, stuff out of it. If you were, oh, what was it like before Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 13, verse 10. What was it like down there? Genesis 13, 10, Lot looked around and he saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So well, let's look at a more photographic picture of what it looks like now. And, and as you do this, consider before the destruction, it was on a par with the Garden of Eden. That's what it meant, the Garden of the Lord. It was that well watered and wonderful. And if you look from the south, you can see all the, all the saltiness down this end here and, and along the walls of there, particularly those cliffs along there. We're going a bit closer. So that's the, those cliffs along the edge. Going a bit closer still. Doesn't look very much like a fertile garden anymore, does it? And you know, you can actually, as you wander around there, you can actually find brimstone. Sulfurous balls there. Here is a picture of a genuine, uh, some genuine brimstone. If you want to get a bit closer, break it open and, and look at it in your hands, you can see the sulfurous ball there. Actually still around in that area. Sulfurous brimstone. And for me, that's a reality check. The evidence demonstrates the truth of the story. Something was going on that God was not happy about, and this is what he did. We'll look at what he did in Genesis 19, verse 24. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. Because there's no vegetation growing in those pictures we saw. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, returned to the place where he had stood before, Sod before the Lord. And he looked down, he's, on, he's up in Hebron on the mountains, he looks down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. What does he see after it? Dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. Well, why was God unhappy with these guys? And we'll go to the book of Ezekiel to find an answer to that, to Ezekiel chapter 16. And it says verse 49 there, Now this was the problem. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant. Oh, hold on, that's different. They were overfed. What? They were unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Oh, this is something which uh, is bigger than what we normally think about. And verse 50, they were haughty, proud. They did detestable things before me. And we go, oh, well, we know what they are. And therefore, I did away with them, as you've seen. And Billy Graham, that great evangelist, said, talking about these people, who said their, their sins were pride. Pride. They're proud people. 
and there was material abundance and they had so much that they also didn't have to work that hard and they had plenty of free time, plenty of leisure time, but they ignored the needy people. They ignored the poor and the oppressed. And this is a... I was uh, just struck by how important it is to not forget the poor people and the oppressed people from this story. So it's a bundle of sins, not just that obvious gay pride. And, and yeah, pride, gay, go together. The sin of that self-centred search for the next intense thrill with others, but without any real concern for their welfare. And we'll see later that the homosexual agenda was also violent. It was militant. Both young and old gathered around Lot's house with the intent of raping his male visitors. So getting Lot out of Sodom, this morning we're going to look at the story from the point of view of getting Lot out. What had to happen to get him out of it? Previously, you see, he'd been given a choice by Abraham about where he's going to live and he looked down and he said, ooh, this is a good place, as beautiful as the Garden of Eden and chose to go and live there. So we'll just look at that in Genesis 13, verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarrelling between you and me, between your herders and mine, because, you know, we are close relatives and, well, the whole land is before us, let's part company. If you want to go left... I'll go right. If you want to go right, I'll go left. And he looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zob was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, that's the garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt, had the river down there. And just a note, this was before, before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he chose for himself the whole plain of Jordan and set out towards the east. And what was he choosing? He was choosing abundance. He was choosing luxury. He was choosing fine living. Not that he was going to be sinful in that. He just liked the good stuff of life. And he's a parable, an example of the danger of choosing comfort over a close relationship with the Lord. He was probably a judge, sat in the gate of the town with the other elders to administer justice. And it means he was trying to do the right thing. He was trying to live righteous, but he was living, trying to live righteous in Sodom. Note Genesis 19, verse 9, when they all, our guys came around the door, they said, get out of our way. This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge. So he was probably, and we'll see later on, he was sitting in the gate where they did the judging. But Lot was attracted to the city. He married a girl of the city, who of course came with all the values of the city. And sadly, later when his daughters got him drunk, we can assume they were able to do so because he was used to drinking. Lot was enjoying the pleasures of living in the city. And you contrast that really with Abram, who is up on the hills in Hebron, up close to the Lord, living away from the sinful city. So you've got Lot in Sodom, attracted to Sodom, still maintaining some righteousness. And we know he was still righteous to some extent because just before this, his uncle Abraham had had a very interesting conversation with God when God told him he was going to destroy Sodom. And although Abraham didn't live in Sodom, he was still concerned about these people and he pleaded, look, God, would you save them? Even if you could find ten 
Righteous people will just will not destroy all of them, which is a pretty miserable lot of number of good guys to find in a whole city, isn't it? You can find at least ten good guys. Sadly, how many did they actually make it out alive? Only three. As I thought about that, I thought, wow, isn't that amazing? God preserves the majority of the people if he still has a remnant there, if he still has believers in it. And in this case, that, even that remnant was so low that he had to judge them. And so I'm encouraged to see the power of faithful people, the power of a remnant in God's eyes. Even though there's few of us, God can still choose to bless everyone because of our faith. Now, God didn't just do this on hearsay. He didn't have second information, second-hand information about this. Genesis chapter 18, verse 20. The Lord said, this is what he's heard, the second-hand information. He's heard that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous. Well, in that case, I will go down and I'll see. And I'll see if what they have done is as bad as this outcry that's reached me. And if not, I'll know. And three men came down. Stopped first at Abraham's place, told him, guess what, you're going to have a son next year. And then two of them went off to Sodom, while the third just stayed behind with Abraham. We'll see in chapter 18, verse 22, the men turned away, that's the two, they went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord, because the third was the Lord. And there's where Abraham pleads with him for Sodom. But we're going to follow those two investigators in chapter 19, verse 1, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. You know, that's where the, the judges sit. And when he saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, then go on your way early in the morning. I suppose wash your feet was the same as what we'd say, you can have a shower. They didn't have showers then, but you know, if you only got sandals and it's dusty roads, that's a good thing to do. Good way, that's the dirtiest part gets clean. No, they answered, we'll spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered into his house. And he prepared a meal for them. He baked bread without yeast and they ate. So Lot really pressured the angels to come home with him because even though he lived in Sodom, he knew how bad the place was where he lived. And verse 4, Before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Do you notice that it said all the men came? And then... We're confronted with the crux of the problem that Lot had with thinking he could live in Sodom. He thought he had the power to live successfully in Sodom. He thought he was strong enough to overcome all the temptations. He was trusting in himself. And that, my friend, is why we have besetting sins. Because we think we're strong enough to handle them ourselves. That we don't need anyone else's help. We think we can live in Sodom 
and enjoy a little indulgence from time to time. What smoker doesn't think, oh, I can give it up any time I like? I'm just having a bit of enjoyment here. And so we'll see from the story this morning, I think one of the most important lessons today is to know that we can't do it ourselves. Verse 6, the story goes on. Lot went outside to meet them. He shut the door behind them and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. He's got, he's got to be blind for what he says next. Look, I've got two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they've come under the protection of my roof. And, and we just can't conceive of the disrespect for women that Lot shows here, can we? Sadly, in the history of the world, this has very often been exactly the usual situation. Women have been considered over the centuries as almost mere possessions. Do what you like with. But if you're one of the girls, what a massive loss of respect must have they have just had at that point, right here, for their father, who should have been their protector. No wonder, later, when father made no provision for them to have proper husbands, that they went to the extreme that they did in order to have children. Carry on with the story. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and they moved forward to break down the door. The men inside reached out and they pulled Lot back into the house. They shut the door and struck the man who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so they couldn't find the door. The angels had the power to save Lot. Lot didn't have it. The angels physically removed Lot and blinded his attackers. And friends, if you want to get out of Sodom, if you want to get past a seed or a sin that's been steadily growing into a seedling and a sapling, then you need to understand this reality. You only get out of Sodom if God helps you get out. And he'll only do it if you ask for his help and if you entrust yourself to his help, which means... You've got to lean on his help and you've got to follow the instructions he gives you. That's how you get out. In verse 12, the two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? You've got sons-in-law, you've got daughters or sons. You've got anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry of, to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So these guys have got power from God, haven't they? They can destroy the city. But so the Lord went out, he spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters, and he said, hurry, come on, let's get out of here because the Lord's going to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law, if you don't believe in God, you think you're joking. And with the coming of the dawn, the angels urged Lot, hurry, take your wife. And two daughters are here, or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. Well, surely Lot must have been disappointed when his sons-in-law would refuse to come. But don't forget, he'd chosen to live in a place where there are only bad sons-in-law available. He still hesitates. 
still hesitates. And God has to step in. See in verse 16, when he hesitated, he's, he's frozen there. When he hesitated, the man grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. For the Lord was merciful to them. And as soon as they'd brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere in, in the plains. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. And then you'll see the pull that Sodom still has on Lot. Instead of going the whole way to the mountains to where his uncle Abraham lives righteously with the Lord, he still wants to stay on the plain. Hear what he says, verse 18. But Lot said to them, No, no, my lords, please. Your servant has found favour in your eyes and you've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me. I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to. It's a small one. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? And then my life will be spared. And he said to them, Very well, I will grant this request to you. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. So the grace of God here, amazing. But flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. And that's why the town was called Zoar. And by the time Lot had reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. So you know, started at dawn, got him out at dawn. Sun's risen over the land, so I must be halfway through the day. And then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. Friends, if you want to get out of Sodom, don't go halfway like Lot did. Don't only go to Zoar. Don't misjudge your capacity to go all the way if God tells you to run. Lot could have run to the mountains, but he didn't think he could. He, could, he only thought he could make it a bit further down the plain to Zoar. And, and that's what the enemy will do to our minds now, thinking through soft living, through enjoyment of the pleasures of he offers, he'll make you think you don't have the power to go all the way to have a real godly life. And he'll remind you of your mistakes over and over in order to knock out your determination, in order to knock out your confidence in God's capacity to save you completely. If you want to get out of Sodom, trust that once God's got you moving, you have the capacity to go all the way to the mountains. Jesus believed this story and he said there's another message in it. In Luke chapter 17, he's speaking to his disciples, verse 28. And he says this about this story. He says, it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven, destroyed them all. And it'll be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. And so he's reminding his disciples, take this story seriously because the Son of Man will be revealed one day and Jesus will return. And as it was cataclysmic for Sodom, so when Jesus returns, it'll be cataclysmic for the whole world. Sodom's restore, Sodom's was a real story. Jesus' return is a real story to come. There won't be any great revival going on when Jesus returns. 
People will not be turning, turning joyously towards him in exceptional numbers so that the spiritual world is just evolving into being ready for him. No, it's going to be like what it was in the days of Lot. And solemnly, in our story, there came a time when the angels pulled Lot inside and they shut the door. They'd come to see how bad things were. They saw, they assessed, and they shut the door. And if you have some seeds, Sodom-like seeds growing in your area of your life, there will come a time when God will shut the door and you'll be given over to that sin and you'll suffer its consequences. But it's not what God wants. He's calling us, all of us, to go to the mountains, to come to that place of peace, to come to that place of healing, of freedom from bondages of your lusts and appetites. But if you don't go all the way to the mountains, you're not going to experience all of the joy, all of the peace which God the Father has always intended for you to have. Lot got out of Sodom, but only to Zoar. And his daughters got him drunk, they had sex with him, they got pregnant, and their descendants have pestered the Jews ever since. See in Genesis 19 verse 36, so both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son and she named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites. The younger daughter also had a son and she named him Ben-Ami. And he's the father of the Ammonites of today. The Jewish people who thought about this had a collection of uh, teachings from rabbis called the Midrash. And in it they said this interesting thought. The improper act, talking about Lot, the improper improper act that you intended to be done to your daughters will indeed be committed but to you what goes around comes around so as we pull it together the power to get out of Sodom we accept and we've talked quite a lot about the reality of judgment uh, we talked about understanding you can't do it in your own strengths and you need to rely upon two very important things his word and his spirit and you need to just rejoice in what God can do in you and does do in you. Two, two verses from the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. If you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit, and that's the thing, you know, getting out of Sodom, beating those things which hold you back, that have held you back for years, you do it by the Spirit. Put to death the misdeeds of the body. Rely on him. Lean on him. Trust that he can do that if and ask him for help. And Ephesians 5 just talks about uh, how the place of the word in this context from verse 25, husband loves your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. And that's, that's our joyous hope for all of us. We can be holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Reading the word washes us, cleanses us. And here's this, this is the picture for us. This is what God wants of us, to be a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. God wants us, wants to help us get out of Sodom because he wants us like this, cleansed by getting lots of Bible into us, cleansed by relying on the Holy Spirit, wants us radiant, 
without wrinkle, without blemish. He wants us holy and blameless. And this is how we need to be if we're going to spend eternity with a God who is a consuming fire who dwells in unapproachable light. Because Sodom shows us what happens when a consuming fire has had enough of sinfulness. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, there's a challenge here from what you've done in the past. It's an example for us and just reminds us to be serious about our life, be serious about being godly, to be serious about washing and cleansing ourselves through the word, through trust. So as we pause this morning, I pray that you'd raise hope in any of us who need to put aside something we've been uh, trying to live with and thinking we had power to overcome. Forgive us our trespasses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.